The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. One problem facing people at many levels of business is how to make time for a work life and a personal life. Do you find that one seems to keep getting in the way of the other? This is the Work-Life Balance with Rick Morris. Even if you're not involved in the business world, you'll have a lot to gain by tuning in to today's show. Now, here is your host, Rick Morris. And we have got another Friday on the Work-Life Balance. So happy that you guys are with us. Uh, You can find me at uh, www.rsquaredconsulting.com. You spell out squared. Or you can find me at at Rick A. Morris. Uh, We're actually going to be discussing one of my favorite topics today. We do not have a guest, so it's an hour with me, so have at it. Uh, And again, we'd love to have uh, some call-ins today if you guys uh, would love to call in, love to hear from you. Um, But uh, the topic I want to talk about today really kind of uh, was sparked uh, by the event that I was at last week. So last week, I got a chance to speak at the USS Intrepid in New York City. Uh, with the guys from PDWare, uh, and uh, they ran a fantastic event. We did the Resource Planning Summit, and I wasn't really prepared for this. I was I was um, walking along the USS Intrepid, and I saw something that said the uh, the space shuttle uh, experience. And so I was walking along the the deck of the USS Intrepid, and walked in there, and they had the actual space shuttle Enterprise on deck, and. That freaked me out. Uh, for me, uh, I grew up in Orlando, Florida, and uh, I used to watch the space shuttles launch all the time and saw uh, Challenger uh, happen live. And, uh, you know, I was in middle school at the time, and so that had a pretty major impact to me. And so as I started to get into project management, I really started to study what happened with the Challenger um, and really started to study some of those cultural things. And there was a term that was utilized in Space Shuttle Challenger in that disaster. And it was a term that I start to see and I I really work with, not quite daily, but I see it almost in a daily environment. And it's a term called groupthink. And it's it's something that, it it can be positive, it's often negative, uh, but it is absolutely a phenomenon. And it's, it's something that you need to recognize that's happening. It's something that you need to see uh, going on in organizations, it's something that you need to recognize is happening around you. Need, you absolutely need to see when it's recognize, uh, when it's happening to you. And um, so when I saw the enterprise, you know, literally my just my heart dropped. I could not believe. At first, I thought it was fake. I thought it was like a replica, or you know, they, they had done some sort of museum piece. Maybe they did it in Legos or something. I don't know. But uh, yeah, I just couldn't believe. I was looking at it, and then I saw the pictures. And the stories, uh, newspapers and that kind of stuff of how they had won the the contract to house and, and use it as, as a museum piece. So, I mean, I could not believe that I was staring at the USS Enterprise. So I was so pumped by that. And it sparked all of this. And when I, when I wrote uh, my first actual book, uh, which was Project Management That Works, um, I actually wrote about groupthink. And as I said, I, I got into some pretty deep studies. 
And so I thought we'd spend this hour uh, talking about groupthink. We'll talk about what it is, um, what the actual terms are, uh, some of the famous examples that I know about in history um, and what it meant, what uh, you can do about it, um, how you can recognize it in your environment, what it can do and, and how it can hurt your business and uh, how to avoid it. So that's what we're going to be talking about today here on the Work-Life Balance. So uh, again, thank you so much for joining us and uh, looking for a little audience uh, participation because I'm missing you know, my guests. And so I'm just going to be sitting here staring at a wall talking to you guys for the next hour. But you know, we can pull that off. So let's start with groupthink, man. What is groupthink? So the term was really first used in 1972, which is a fantastic year because that was the year I was born. So in 1972, a social psychologist, Irving Janus, um, referred to this psychological phenomenon in which people strive for consensus within a group. And so in many cases, people will set aside their own personal beliefs or they will adopt the opinion of the rest of the group. And so essentially, you could believe very strongly about something or you could have a very personal belief, but when the rest of the group is believing in something else then you will acquiesce, you will back off. Um, And so people who are opposed to the decisions or overriding opinion of the group as a whole frequently remain quiet, uh, preferring to keep the peace rather than disrupt the uniformity of the crowd. And how dangerous can that be? I mean, that's crazy. Why, I mean, why, why does this even occur? I mean, think about the last time that you were part of a big group. I mean, maybe it was a school project. Maybe it was a, you know, a big business project. Um, maybe it was a family meeting for that matter. Um, imagine that someone proposes an idea or something that you think is awful, man. You think it's a horrible idea. And before you even have a chance to speak up, everyone else in the group just automatically was like, dude, we are doing that, man. That is awesome. Yeah, we're going for that. And everybody just starts agreeing with the person who suggested that idea. And they just, they're, they're doing it, man. We're, we're going down that course of action. We're going to absolutely do this. Uh, so are you going to be the person to voice dissent? Or do you just kind of go along with that majority opinion, right? Do you want to be that naysayer? Do you want to be the person in the room that starts to quell that fire. Because if you do, right, you fear the backlash, right? And so what happens is many people uh, end up engaging in this phenomena of group think when they fear that their objections are going to disrupt the harmony of the group or suspect that their ideas may cause the other members to reject them, right? Because people love to belong to a group, right? You like to belong to popular opinion. Um, you know, <laughs> I mean, I, I've got a, a young daughter, right? And she's a teenager. She's in high school, man. And it, so remember, try to put yourself back into high school. Remember sitting around a group and everybody's laughing. And they're like, hey, did you see that movie? Yeah, I saw the movie. They turn around and they come to you. Did you see that movie? And you know you didn't. You know you didn't see that movie, but you'll be like, yeah, man, that was funny. And you're like, do you remember that part? And now you're stuck. You're like, yeah, man, that, 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 that was a funny movie. I remember that. So Janice suggested that the group think tends to be most prevalent in conditions where there's a high degree of cohesiveness, like everybody's really super together. Um, and situational factors that contribute to deferring the group, such as external threats or moral problems or difficult decisions, and structural issues such as impartial leadership or group isolation, that, that's when this, this tends to 
happen most often. Now, where I've seen it happen most often is super high stress situations. And so that's where, you know, my project management background, um, you know, somebody's saying, you know, we got to, we got to do this date. We got to get it done by this date. I was working with an organization um, that was bringing a heart device uh, to market. And the, the CEO was just, you know, had gone to the street, had told everybody that, hey, you know, we're going to get this device um, into human trials um, by June. And so if you guys don't know a lot about bringing devices like that to market, you know, first you have to have a working prototype and then you go into uh, first animal trials and then you go into human drug trials. So the animal trial process can take anywhere um, for four to five months and there's all kinds of regulatory paperwork and that kind of stuff. And then there's a, you know, sometimes a two or three month approval process before it can go into human trials. And they haven't even finished their prototype. And so to say something like that, um, this is like September, October. So to say that they were going to be in human drug trials by June was just ludicrous. There's just no way. Um, and so we're sitting around a room and it's all the executives and, and I was a hired consultant. So I, I'm there. I'm allowed to dissent, right? I'm, I'm a hired gun. So I, I get to say the things that people don't necessarily always want to say. And so he says, yeah, well, you know, I set this, this date. We're going to get it done by June. And he looks at me and he says, you know, what do you think? And I said, I think it's you know, somewhat crazy. And I was like, what does the rest of the group think? And nobody wanted to back me, man. Nobody wanted to, to back me up at all. And so I went back to the CEO. I said, what do you think? He goes, well, I think everybody's working Christmas. And everybody just started nodding their head. They're like, yeah, I think, it, you know, I think we're, we're all just going to be working really hard. And I was like, why would you make everybody work Christmas and over the holidays against a date that we know is impossible. I mean, you can't even get the paperwork done and get out of animal trials by June. I mean, why are we pushing for something we know is just simply, you know, I understand, you know, let's rally the troops, let's get people going, but why would we push for something we know isn't going to happen? And nobody would speak up. And I'm just sitting here witnessing group think, right, in its, in its greatest form. And it's crazy to watch that. So when you start looking around, you start looking at all these different symptoms of groupthink. So what are some of the symptoms? What, what are things that you, how do you start to recognize that you're within a group? Well, first of all, you've got the one big guy who says something and everybody's just says, yes, man. Like, oh, yeah, we're, we're there. Second of all, to me, the, 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 the biggest one to me, and I'll throw out, and we're, we're going to talk about several symptoms. I'm going to spend a whole other segment next segment talking about symptoms of groupthink. But the biggest one to me it, that, that hit me hard is what was called the illusion of, of I'm not going to even be able to say, unanimity. So basically, everybody thinks we've got a unanimous opinion, right? So you lead members to believe that everybody feels the same way as I do. And I've seen great salespeople or people that possess the, the gene to influence be able to go, hey, yeah, no, we're doing this. And, and everybody agrees. Let's rock. No, no, no. We made this decision. Everybody agrees. Let's rock. And, and so people go, well, everybody agrees. I guess I have to agree too. And that's this whole group think. And, and, and so people start to fear being able to push back. And I've just learned over my career, and, and, you know, it's funny, I tell these different stories in seminars and stuff like that, and I go, so when you say everybody agrees, who's everybody? 
you know, everybody. No, I mean, I, I, look, I'm not trying to push back, but who's everybody? Does that mean, you know, Jones and IT and Fred, the CEO, and Tom, the CIO? And have we talked to finance yet and the core users? I mean, does that mean everybody? Or does that mean like everybody who was just like the nine people in that room over there? Because there's like 600 people impacted by this decision. So when you say everybody agrees to that decision, what do you mean by everybody, right? So there's ways that we can combat certain things, but you create this illusion that we have this unanimous decision, and therefore we can kind of begin the symptom of groupthink and get everybody on board with me. So that's how we're going to get started in this session. We've got three more sessions where we're discussing groupthink. Please hang on with me. If not everybody's going to hate you if you don't listen to the rest of the Work-Life Balance this week. You're listening to Rick Morris and the Work-Life Balance. Thanks. Are you frustrated with the overall productivity of your project management processes? Do you lack consistency in project delivery? R-Squared Consulting provides end-to-end services to assist companies of all sizes in realizing and improving the value of project management. Whether you want to build a project management office, train project managers, or learn how to bring the oversight and governance to your project processes, R-Squared has tailored best practices to help you in all areas of project management. Visit rsquaredconsulting.com. Today, every business is in the software business. And business is booming. That's because we live in an application-driven world where the lines between physical and digital are blurrier every day. It's a world where billions of connected things talk to each other. Where agility is the new driver of competitive advantage. Where applications aren't just part of your brand. They are your brand. All of this means you have a new mandate. Build the apps that will drive the future of your business and satisfy demanding customers, or fall behind. Only CA Technologies has the years of expertise and the end-to-end portfolio of software solutions to help you plan, build, manage, secure, and scale the applications at the heart of your modern enterprise. To learn how your business can thrive, visit rewrite.ca.com, your exclusive source for insights from the cutting edge of the application economy. Are you getting the most out of your project management software? In many cases, it is not the software that is failing, but the implementation, limitations, or processes surrounding the use of that software. R-Squared can analyze your current use and help improve your return on investment. R-Squared can also suggest the best software for your organization and goals and assist in the selection, implementation, and training. Allow R-Squared to ensure that you are getting the value of your investment. Visit rsquaredconsulting.com today. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are tuned in to the Work-Life Balance. To reach Rick Morris or his guest today, we'd love to have you call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. If you'd rather send an email, Rick can be reached at rmorris at rsquaredconsulting.com. Now, back to the Work-Life Balance. 
And welcome back. We always like to thank our sponsors, uh, R-Square Consulting and CA, to uh, supporting the work-life balance. And we're talking about groupthink today. Uh, and we had just left off with the started going down uh, different symptoms of groupthink uh, that was identified by uh, Janice and his study, but uh, also uh, interlaying some stories that I've seen uh, with that. And uh, we'll get into some aspects of what I've seen in groupthink uh, throughout history and some other things. And of course, if you'd like to chime in, you can certainly dial in at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. So getting back to that, so some of the other things... Um, and this this was a big aspect, certainly around um, the the housing bubble. Um, I, I you know we saw a lot of this um, happening quite a bit, um, which was the illusion of invulnerable uh, invulnerability. Man, I can't even speak today. Inlu- illusions of uh, being invulnerable, uh, and, and this basically leads members of a group to be overly optimistic and engage in risk taking, and basically feel like you can't fail. Uh, and Maxwell talks about this, too, in, in saying that a lot of times too much success um, actually can be really, really bad sometimes. Uh, so, you know, there's, there's that feel, fear of failure, but sometimes too much success can be bad, too, because you, you start to become invulnerable. And, and, and there, at that point, you think there's no way that we can fail. And so, um, you know, I, I watched an organization here in town. Um, do this where you know these guys were privately held and so they they really didn't care about how they spent money because as long as everybody was making their bonuses everybody was happy until all of a sudden you stop making those bonuses and then it's too late because all of the wasteful habits and the poor processes and all those different things start to catch up to you Um, but at that point you know, it, it it doesn't. I remember uh, when when I was uh, I, I can't I don't think I should say the name, but I was working for a, a big consulting firm, and right before the dot bomb happened um, in two thousand, we literally had a mandate uh, that we should play golf at least uh, once to twice per week. Uh, if we had a client, great. If not, don't worry about it. But we should be out there on the golf course once or twice per week, and that's because you know. We were killing it, man. Everybody was killing their number. Everybody was making a ton of money. Um, I had stock options, I want to say, at $97 a share. Um, And then literally six months later, those same stock options, uh, if I traded them in, I think we're at four bucks. And uh, nobody was allowed to play golf. Nobody was allowed to stay any at the normal hotels that we were used to. Nobody could really travel. It was the same thing but we were in this whole group think that we were invulnerable nobody can touch us everything's great so on and so forth another big symptom is unquestioned beliefs Um, so these lead members to ignore possible moral problems and ignore consequences of individual and group actions and this was absolutely 100% to me the challenger disaster but I'm going to save that for the third segment uh, and really, that I need to save it for that because that's going to bring me down a little bit. And, and I'm in too good of a mood right now to be brought down. Uh, another one is rationalizing. So it prevents members from reconsidering their beliefs and causes. Um, and, it, it, and it basically makes them ignore warning signs. So that's a big symptom of, of groupthink is, is basically you, you start to rationalize every possible – so when you start to identify these risks or you start to look at things, you're like, no, it's really okay. No, we should stay out late. 
and, and party versus going to bed and get a, a good night's sleep because yeah, you know it, it, the, basically to me that's like the you know the, the the people that are in Vegas at the the conferences they're like nah I can get four hours sleep I'll be fine I don't need to be out there that's rationalizing the group thing that's when everybody's together going now nah, let's have one more drink we're gonna be fine. Uh, stereotyping leads members of the in-group to ignore or even demonize the out-group members uh, who may oppose or challenge the group's ideas. Um, to me, that is one of the most detrimental areas for not only team dynamics, but really when you start to look at a team dynamic. Uh, in my book, Project Management That Works, and, and there's several different ones, I, I'm a big fan of disc profiling. And so disc profiling says that there's four unique personality types. And I think it's absolutely paramount that all four personality types are on a team. We need all of the different personality types because we all have our different strengths and weaknesses. It's very common, though, that if we have more of a certain personality type, it's easy for us to demonize or cast out the personality type that doesn't tend to belong. Make fun of them. Oh, she's always picky. Oh, he's always moralistic. Don't worry about him. And when we do that, we tend to quell that person. So uh, I was a project turnaround specialist for Xerox. And I had learned this technique very, very early on that in identifying groupthink, the projects that were failing quite a bit there was always a communication breakdown between executives, the project manager, the project team, that kind of stuff. Well, I could always go into a project team, find the outcast, essentially the person who had just been groupthinked to death and stopped communicating. And it was always that person that seemed to have the answer or the knew the problem and how we could turn the project around. It was almost like I could walk in, find out who was alienated, grab that person, say, tell me the problem. They would tell me. What's the solution? They would tell me. I'd turn around, implement that. And they'd look at me like I was a genius. And I was like, no. I just found out through the team dynamics who got alienated because they had the right answers. And everybody else was group thinking them to death. It was unbelievable. And I was very successful at being able to identify those environments and finding out who was getting shut down. Because the person who was getting shut down had the unpopular idea. But generally because they were, having, they were going down the right path. The right path generally is the hard path, as John Maxwell says, everything worthwhile is uphill. Generally, everybody else was wanting to take the shortcuts and uh, let's just keep doing it this way. Uh, this is the way we've always done it. Why do we need to change this? And they would group think that person out. And I had the ability to go in, take a look, find out who that person was, get the right solution, and it tended to work. Um Mind guards is the other one. They, they're, these are people that kind of act as a self-appointed censor to hide problematic information from the group. And, and I had two bosses that I worked for that were like this. So you would sit there. I'm, I'm very, very upfront with my clients. And, and as you guys know, as a radio host, I tend to overshare. And in this scenario, as I would sit down to, just, to discuss a problem with a client, these, these people would be like, no, 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 everything's fine. No, it's perfect. The project's great. Everything's great, right? And they would be the mind guard essentially saying, you know, you, you can't say that to a client. You can't. No, no, no. And I, and I would always be the guy going, why? Well, you, we, just, just, we, don't need to, we don't need to 
let people know that there's an issue. We don't need people to know that there, there's problems going on. We'll just fix those beforehand. And that is a huge censorship issue that tends to shut people down because if you don't have that freedom to express the issue to resolve something, then groupthink sets in. One of my favorite stories uh, was when I was working um, uh, for for CA. I actually worked for CA at a time, and we had a, a, a large issue, and it was it was a typical project management issue. It wasn't an issue with software. It wasn't an issue with anything. We actually had one of my favorite clients, and they were probably the most well-prepared client I ever walked into, and that turned out to be one of our detriments because it was another form of groupthink. We felt over-prepared. We felt to the point that you know, everything was perfect. And so instead of normally having to dive into requirements with the client and really have to dig in and, and go through it, we walked in, we were provided with the binder, we had all the requirements, everything was going. And one of the key things is that we needed to be able to do everything out of the box. And so one of the things was is that we were handling all the identities for all these back-end banks and, and they were servicing them. And out of the box, we needed to be able to uh, do self-service passwording and then return the user back to the bank that they came from. And that was the very last use case. And we got there and realized we couldn't do that out of the box. And we failed as a project team to recognize that. And a very high-ranking executive from CA decided to visit my team and me and meet me for the first time. Um, on that day that I find this out. And he's in that meeting with me. He comes in, sits down, and my lead engineer comes in and says, we got a huge problem. And so he tells me the story. And so I stand up, and this executive looks at me, and he, he says, what are you going to go do? I said, well, I'm going to go tell the client. He goes, what are you going to tell him? I said, the same information I just found out. And he goes, yeah, but don't you want to have a plan and all that? And I said, well, I'm going to go tell the client that I'm going to formulate a plan. But I want the client to have the same amount of time to formulate a plan as I do. What I don't want the client to do is look at me and say, well, when did you find out? And have me say, four hours ago. But I spent four hours coming up with a plan, and evidently you don't like that plan either. right? So I've always learned to be honest to a fault. And that executive and I are still great, great friends because of that move. Right? He didn't, he wasn't one of those mind guards, and we were very open and free with the information. And we retained that customer for a very long time because of that move as well, because we didn't fall into that group think. So th- there's a lot of different systems. Now, I've been speaking about group think in in kind of a negative context. Now, group think can have some benefits, right? When you work with a large number of people, it often you know, groupthink can often allow a group to make decisions or complete tasks or finish projects quickly and efficiently, right? But it has costs as well, right? Because the suppression of, of individual opinions and creative thought can lead to poor decision-making or even inefficient problem-solving. Um, so we've got to watch it. I mean, so while there are some benefits, right, a lot of them have some very negative costs, um, so we want to make sure that you look at this and you want to prevent or minimize groupthink as much as possible. So what we're going to do is we're going to take another quick break, and then I'm going to tell you about the two biggest stories that I know of in history where groupthink was actually cited as the reason um, for these disasters. And what I found out about them as I started to research this phenomenon for my book 
and why I even talk about groupthink and why I study groupthink as a project manager. So please stay with me. We'll see you on the other side of the break. You're listening to the Work-Life Balance with Rick Morris. Are you frustrated with the overall productivity of your project management processes? Do you lack consistency in project delivery? R-Squared Consulting provides end-to-end services to assist companies of all sizes in realizing and improving the value of project management. Whether you want to build a project management office, train project managers, or learn how to bring the oversight and governance to your project processes, R-Squared has tailored best practices to help you in all areas of project management. Visit rsquaredconsulting.com. This is not a radio ad. It's a collection of computers, servers, transmitters, satellites, and receivers, all powered by the most transformative force in business today, software. Just think about how many applications you have within reach at this very moment, and not just on your phone. If you're in your car, software is powering the GPS that guides you. Turn left ahead. The digital road signs that direct you onward, and the engine computer that keeps you moving. Soon, software will even replace you as the driver. Switching to auto drive mode. This is life in the application economy, and the opportunities for businesses are endless. But only if you have the tools to seize them. From planning to development to management to security, end-to-end software solutions from CA Technologies can help your business succeed in this new application-driven world. Learn how at rewrite.ca.com. Are you getting the most out of your project management software? In many cases, it is not the software that is failing, but the implementation, limitations, or processes surrounding the use of that software. R-Squared can analyze your current use and help improve your return on investment. R-Squared can also suggest the best software for your organization and goals and assist in the selection, implementation, and training. Allow R-Squared to ensure that you are getting the value of your investment. Visit rsquaredconsulting.com today. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned in to the Work-Life Balance. To reach Rick Morris or his guest today, we'd love to have you call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. If you'd rather send an email, Rick can be reached at rmorris at rsquaredconsulting.com. Now, back to the Work-Life Balance. And we're back. We've been discussing groupthink today, and as promised, we're going to discuss groupthink in history now. And, uh... In looking back at history and looking at the phenomena of groupthink, there was two major historical events. And, and of course, you know, groupthink, actually, if you look at Twitter right now and, and just do a hashtag of groupthink, uh, a lot of people are thinking uh, Trump and Clinton um, are groupthink situations right now. Um, if they think uh, Bush and the uh, weapons of mass destruction uh, piece was groupthink, um, and certainly those those all certainly have aspects of it. I'm going to go a little bit further back. The first time that I ever really saw groupthink, as you look in history, and a lot of people have, have written about this, um, goes back to JFK. And, um, you know, a fascinating facet of Kennedy's legacy 
really involves the decision-making procedures he used uh, among his closest advisors. I mean, some brought great successes. Other were serious failures. I mean, I think, you know, JFK continues to fascinate us all to this day. Um, but one of the biggest ones uh, was in 1961, which was the Bay of Pigs invasion. And this was an attempt to invade Cuba and overthrow Fidel Castro. Um, and it absolutely became truly a fiasco. I mean, it was absolutely, um, you know, crazy. Now, the term itself, group think, wasn't really widely socialized till 1972. But as they started to go back and apply this through historical purposes, um, Bay of Pigs invasion is really where you know they, the the first kind of big incident that they used uh, to go through that. And and so one of the quotes, you know, coming back through the Bay of Pigs invasion, uh, John F. Kennedy said, you know, how could I have been so stupid? And he, he said it was absolutely a colossal mistake. It left him feeling depressed, guilty, bitter, and in tears. And uh, one historian uh, later called the Bay of Pigs invasion one of those rare events in history where it was an absolute perfect failure. So what, what really happened? So in 61, um, CIA military leaders wanted to use Cuban exiles to overthrow Fidel Castro. And so after lengthy consideration among his top advisors, Kennedy approved a covert invasion and basically advanced press reports alerted Castro to the threat. And over 1,400 invaders um, essentially landed a Bay of Pigs and they were vastly outnumbered. They didn't have any air support. They didn't have the necessary ammunition and they didn't have an escape route. And so essentially as people continue to, to dive in and look at past documents and all this stuff, um, top CIA leaders started to blame Kennedy for not authorizing airstrikes. Other CIA analysts fault the wishful thinking that the invasion would stimulate kind of an uprising among uh, Cuba's populace and military. Uh, planners assumed that the invaders could simply get into the mountains for guerrilla operations. Uh, except that there was all kinds of swampland and, and things like that that separated the bay from the mountains, um, and all kinds of stuff uh, was going on. So when Irving Janis uh, looked at this, um, he felt that Kennedy's top advisors were simply unwilling to challenge bad ideas because it might uh, disturb perceived or desired group concurrence. And so what he was saying is that everybody wanted to overthrow Castro. And so everybody kept going, well, we think it's a good idea to do this. And so as one bad idea after another bad idea after another bad idea started to mount, more and more and more people stayed silent. Um, you know, people uh, started to speak up months afterwards, which tends to happen, right? After a huge failure, more and more people come out and say, Oh, yeah, well, I thought that was a bad idea. But the, the question is, why didn't you say that earlier? Right? I mean, why didn't you say anything before? So, like, Attorney General Robert uh, Kennedy privately admonished um, presidential advisor Arthur Schlesinger, right? And Arthur Schlesinger uh, presented serious objections to the invasion in a memorandum to the president, but suppressed his doubts in team meetings. So, in private memorandums, he would say, oh, I think these ideas are horrible. But when he got into team meetings, he didn't say a word. And then Schlesinger later said 
in the months after Bay of Pigs, he, he was very upset with himself for being so silent during those crucial discussions. But he said he could only explain his failure to do so um, basically because of the group dynamic, right? He basically just couldn't, couldn't speak up. And that was so many decisions like that continued to basically domino and led to the ultimate failure of Bay of Pigs invasion. There's some fantastic articles out there on the web and things like that. You guys can look that up. Um, but in interest of time, and, and you know, I can speak for hours on these topics, I want to get to the other one that was near and dear to my heart, which was Challenger. Again, I saw that personally. Um, saw it happen. Um, was in Orlando. We were part of the community that that it really hit. Um, and, uh, you know, just watched hours and hours of television. Uh, but then when I really got into project management and started to analyze it, there was so much public pressure about launching. And so the biggest thing is everybody knows now it's the O-rings, right? But we didn't know that. And so the biggest thing was how fast we were supposed to be able to turn around the shuttles and get them back up into space. And the O-rings were tested at that point, I believe, a floor temperature of 55 degrees. And why did we not test them lower than 55 degrees? Well, we launched in Florida. Florida's not supposed to get that cold. And at the point that they were arguing, the, the temperature, I think, was supposed to be 45 degrees at launch. And so, essentially, the engineers at Morton Thiokol had come out and said, look, we can't launch in this. The big issue, though, was that Morton Thiokol had a multi-million dollar contract on the table with NASA that was unsigned. And now NASA is coming to them going, hey, are you sure we can't launch? And they said, they, and literally Morton Thiokol at first said, we don't recommend a launch. And NASA comes back and says, when do you recommend a launch? Next April? And they said, take a look at your data. Are you sure? Which was a clear threat. So all of the engineers, Beaujolais, all these other guys, they come back, and then the managers of Morton Thiokol shut out the engineers. So clear exclusion, right? They shut out the engineers, and they hold a private meeting. And in this meeting, all of the managers look at the director of engineering, who is uh, Robert Lund, Bob Lund. And they look at Bob and the quote, and it's one of the most infamous and studied quotes in groupthink history. They look at him and they say, Bob, you need to take off your engineering hat and put on your management hat and make a decision. And what are they telling this guy? Hey, you need to side with us because we got to get this multi-million dollar contract signed. And if we delay NASA, they're not going to sign it. So we need to tell them what they want to hear so that they can launch. Now, the most amazing thing is that they were having this argument when the temperature was at 45 degrees. Well, at the time of launch, the temperature was 18 degrees. Now, I've had the personal pleasure of, of interviewing Roger Beaujolais, who was one of the engineers who was arguing so heavily against the launch. And he tells me it was like a horror film. He said, if you ever watched a horror film, they play this music to throw you off. He said the, the blow-by, which is what actually caused the explosion, which was hot air getting past or hot gas getting past the O-rings, which is what actually ignited and caused the explosion. He said the blow-by is... is at the greatest risk during the pad, right at the pad of launch. He said Challenger should have never even gotten off the launch pad. He said, so the fact that it got off the launch pad 
and was so high up in the air was amazing. And he said, for every second she flew, my defenses got down. So when she exploded that high up, it, it was absolutely devastating to him. Now, the thing is, is groupthink continued at Morton Thiokol because what they actually said was at the congressional hearing, everybody towed the line. What happened at that meeting stays at that meeting. Nobody needs to know. And Beaujolais spoke up. And at the end of the day, after all the hearings and everything else, Roger Beaujolais was fired for Morton Thiokol for speaking up and speaking out of turn. Bob Lund was promoted to a more senior position. So after all of the mess, what did we actually send as a message to the employees? Well, listen, look, 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 look. I know, I know we blew up the space shuttle. I know we should have done something about it. And I know we should have probably said something sooner about it. But if you go against what management says, you're out. And if you just toe the line, stay with us. As an unbelievable message. It's absolutely what groupthink is all about. And you, you put in a culture of fear and a culture that stifles innovation. You put in a culture that simply says, you don't have a say. You don't have a right. You don't have anything. You simply are going to do what we say is the upper managers. And even if you object, while we hear your objections, we as managers are going to go over offline here and determine whether or not we care. That is absolutely what I see on a day-to-day basis in projects. This is what happens. The project team will go actually go figure out how long something will take. And they say, we've done it. We've all met. We understand what this thing is. And we think it can be done by June. They will take that to an executive branch. And that executive says, great, have it done by February. What do we do with that kind of information? What are you supposed to do with an open culture like that? And I'll tell you the other quote that I hear all the time, specifically around mandated dates. I hear executives say all the time, well, the reason why I mandated that date is because if I don't, then they'll never set a date. The project will never get done. What kind of culture are you building? What kind of precedents are you setting? When you make open statements like that, my people are so stupid, they won't ever set a date, they won't do anything unless I do it for them. We have to watch the cultures in which we built and the innovation in which we stifle. And groupthink is a larger problem in our organizations than people think. And it doesn't take a Bay of Pigs invasion or a Challenger disaster in order for that to blow up in our face and kill the innovation cycles of what's happening in the American business place. You need to think about it. You need to recognize the symptoms, and we need to do something about it. You're listening to The Work-Life Balance with Rick Morris. Today, every business is in the software business. And business is booming. That's because we live in an application-driven world where the lines between physical and digital are blurrier every day. It's a world where billions of connected things talk to each other, where agility is the new driver of competitive advantage, 
where applications aren't just part of your brand, they are your brand. All of this means you have a new mandate. Build the apps that will drive the future of your business and satisfy demanding customers, or fall behind. Only CA Technologies has the years of expertise and the end-to-end -end portfolio of software solutions to help you plan, build, manage, secure, and scale the applications at the heart of your modern enterprise. To learn how your business can thrive, visit rewrite.ca.com, your exclusive source for insights from the cutting edge of the application economy. This is not a radio ad. It's a collection of computers, servers, transmitters, satellites, and receivers, all powered by the most transformative force in business today, software. Just think about how many applications you have within reach at this very moment. And not just on your phone. If you're in your car, software is powering the GPS that guides you. Turn left ahead. The digital road signs that direct you onward. And the engine computer that keeps you moving. Soon, software will even replace you as the driver. Switching to auto drive mode. This is life in the application economy. And the opportunities for businesses are endless. But only if you have the tools to seize them. From planning to development to management to security, end-to-end -end software solutions from CA Technologies can help your business succeed in this new application-driven world. Learn how at rewrite.ca.com. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned in to the Work-Life Balance. To reach Rick Morris or his guest today, we'd love to have you call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. If you'd rather send an email, Rick can be reached at rmorris at rsquaredconsulting.com. Now, back to the Work-Life Balance. And we're back with the final segment of the Work-Life Balance this Friday afternoon. So we've been talking about groupthink. We talked about the symptoms of groupthink, why it's bad. We talked about the historical aspects of groupthink. So how do you prevent it? How do you prevent groupthink? Or once you've recognized groupthink is going on, um, how can it be prevented? And a lot of it has to come from corporate culture. A lot of it has to come from leadership. A lot of it has to come from recognition. But there are ways to prevent it. Uh, first, you know, leaders can give group members the opportunity to express their own ideas. Um, they can give people the opportunity to argue against ideas that have already been proposed. Um, we talk a lot on this program uh, about uh, different aspects of project management principles. Uh, one of the big things, you know, we've had John Stenbeck on the show several times. We've had Erica Flora on the show when we've talked about Agile um, quite a bit. And one of the reasons why I think Agile is becoming so successful not necessarily as a methodology, but certainly as a tool in the toolbox, is because it does break people, teams up into uh, autonomous teams and smaller teams. Uh, and with the advent of smaller teams and in the agile, true agile methodology, nobody's really the leader. I mean, you have a scrum master, but that the, the scrum master, there is no hierarchy. There, there, there's nobody who's really in charge, which means ideas flow freely. People have the ability to object. If there's a problem, they solve it as a team. And it's really kind of designed to help eliminate that group think potential, which, which is becoming very, very successful. So I do like that aspect quite a bit. 
Um, so breaking up members into smaller, more independent teams can be helpful. Um, some other ideas, you know, initially a, a leader of a group should avoid stating their opinion or preference when assigning tasks, right? Give people time to come up with their own ideas first. Um, and so I, I say this all the time too, uh, as a project manager, I don't ever announce the date that is expected, even if I know the date. So even if I know there's a mandated date, let's say I have a project, it's regulatory, um, we have to be done by June 30th, I don't walk in and announce that to the team and then turn around and ask people when it's going to be done because they're going to go, I guess we got to be done by June 30th. I mean, that's ridiculous to do. What I want to know is how long is this project really going to take? What do we think it's going to take? And then when that date falls out, then I know what I've got to do. I mean, if we think it's going to take till August to complete this project and we have a mandated date of June, then I know that we've got to work on, you know, some aspects to try to, to crash or fast track that schedule in, in order to bring it in two months earlier. But I can't predispose everybody to having it done by June and then turn around and go, well, okay, when is it going to be done? Because I'm going to get June. Then people are like, great, let's go baseline the schedule and off we go. Um, another thing is to... Um, freely assign somebody as a devil's advocate. Essentially announce, hey, this person's going to be devil's advocate and we're going to shoot down every idea that comes up just to be able to vet the idea. It's a really fun tactic, by the way. It's a really good tactic. Um, and it's just a way to make sure that we're getting good ideas through, but it also is announcing that we are going to give pros and cons to every idea. We're just not going to freely accept every idea that comes in to the think tank, essentially. Um, so it, it's a good way. It's preventing that group think. It's, it's preventing that just general acceptance of every idea. It's, it's a way to make sure that we are bouncing things off of each other. Um, you can discuss the group's ideas with an outside member in order to get impartial opinions. Um, one of my favorite um, uh, techniques, just a, as a side note, uh, uh, my business partner and, and one of my mentors and, and just a, one of my best friends in the world is Carrie Blaze. And when I got interviewed to come work for him several years ago, he had a phenomenal interview process. And it was almost like this agile technique, the way agile teams um, do this nominal technique to, um, to estimate tasks was the way that he did this interview technique. But essentially, when he was interviewing a new hire, he would have the interviewing manager, the interviewing manager's peer, um, somebody else within the group, and then a total uninterested party, somebody who was outside the IT technology group. They, they would be a manager, but it would be somebody who wasn't involved in IT or something like that, a totally unobjective party, and then he would be there. And then we would ask the same set of questions of every single person, and then each one of us would rank the answer one through five. And then when the interviewee would leave, we would all announce what we scored so it was totally objective. We would all do it. And then if somebody, if I had said that answer was a five and somebody else said that answer was a one, we would talk it out until one of us came up, one of us came down, and we were within two points. Phenomenal technique. Great way to do idea vetting, anything like that. Phenomenal technique so that everybody had their say. Everybody had a way to rank. Everybody had equal rights. And then if two people were on opposite sides, we had a chance to discuss it and do pros and cons until somebody would come up, somebody would come down, or we'd meet in the middle. 
Uh, encourage group members to remain critical. Don't discourage dissent or challenges to the prevailing opinion. Um, again, if you set the tone and set the precedence early, we can avoid groupthink with the intent that we're not going to take bad ideas forward. And here's a big one. And, and I, I, I can't stress this one enough. And this has to do with trust. And this has to do with enablement. And this is actually going to lead into a, a discussion point who, who we've got coming on as a guest on our show next week. But leaders should be absent from a lot of group meetings to avoid overly influencing decisions. I've met too many leaders who want control, right? You, you, you do these approval processes and say, well, who should approve it? Well, the group, but then I need to see everything. Well, then if you need to see everything, why send it to a group? Why even have their input? If at the end of the day, you're saying you want to see everything, let's just send it to you. Let's not involve the group because essentially you're saying they have no value. What we want to be able to do is start to enable and trust. And leaders need to start to be able to disseminate work and recognize that if I disseminate work and trust people to do their jobs, and you can trust but verify, and I'm okay with that. But if I hire somebody to do a job, I don't need to sit there and be in every meeting and control every decision. They need to be able to function and do their jobs. And the reason why I said that that leads into a great lead into who I'm going to have on next week. When I spoke on the USS Intrepid, I think there was 14 or 15 uh, different keynote speakers at this event. And then I ended up ranked number three, right? And sure, it's always a competition. You always want to be the best. By rank number three, I was behind this Air Force pilot, which is hard to compete with an Air Force pilot speaking on a uh, Air Force carrier, by the way. Um, and then I was behind this um, gentleman, um, uh, Michael Parrish Dudell, who happened to have written um, uh, the official books of Shark Tank. Uh, so he's got Shark Tank Jump, I think, and there's a new uh, Shark Tank book that just released. Um, but he actually is writing the official books for Shark Tank, so he works with the entrepreneurs, follows their story, tells a story. But he also is an expert on the millennials. And by the year 2025, the millennials, I believe, is going to be something like, I, I, I don't want to quote him, and I don't want to steal his thunder, but something like 80% of our workforce. And one of the biggest things that the millennials are looking for right now in the workforce is to be trusted that they can do their job. And, and you know, this we still have this antiquated way of how we're managing people of the way that we even do our performance reviews and everything else is all about, you know, I'm in fully charge and this pecking order and all this other stuff. And we've got to start letting some of that go. And we've got to start valuing our people and making sure that they have that career path and that we can trust. So that's my story on Groupthink. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I love talking to you every week. I love your support of the work-life balance. Again, the numbers continue to roll in. They continue to skyrocket. I love you guys for it. I thank you so much for your support. I just told you who was coming on next week. I am so excited to have this young man on. Um, again, his name is Michael Parrish Dudell. Go research him. He's written the official books for Shark Tank. He's an absolute expert on millennials. I watched him do a, a speech. I was so impressed by him uh, that I, I asked him to be on the show and asked him to be on as quickly as I could get him on. Um, he is, is, is one of the most articulate young men that I've met, uh, knows his stuff, and isn't afraid to give the facts as they are. 
but has one of the most um, not only blunt but just articulate outlooks on the millennials, how to engage them, what they're looking for, how they're impacting our workforce, and what it really means to have a work-life balance in their generation right now. So it's going to be such an exciting show next week. I can't wait for it. I hope you guys all join us. And uh, we look forward to always having you right here at this hour on the Work-Life Balance on the Voice America Network. You've been listening to Rick Morris. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us this week. The Work-Life Balance with Rick Morris can be heard live every Friday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time and 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Now that the weekend is here, it's time to rethink your priorities and enjoy it. We'll see you on our next show.